Welcome to Peace Lab, the podcast looking at Anabaptist ideas about peace building in the 21st century. I'm Hannah Heinzicker from the Mennonite Inc., and we're trying something new today. There are four of us on the call, and we're going to discuss a number of current events and news stories that are trending, both in our country and in our world today. And we'll talk about what's happening and how Anabaptists can and are responding. So today, I'm joined by Jason Boone, my regular co-host for the podcast, who's the director of the Peace and Justice Support Network. Hey, Jason. Good to see you, Hannah, and good to see everyone. All right. And we're also really glad to have with us today Michelle Armster, who is the Executive Director for Mennonite Central Committee Central States, joining us from Kansas today. Thank you for the invitation. It's good to be here. Thanks, Michelle. And finally, we've got Iris DeLeon Hartshorn, who's the Director of Transformative Peacemaking for Mennonite Church USA. I'm calling in today from Portland, Oregon. Hi, Iris. Hi. Good morning from Portland. Oh, that's right. Good morning. Yes. (laughs) Afternoon for the rest of us, but it's true. Well, thanks to each of you for being here. Um, I feel like there is plenty that we could talk about today, plenty of news happening both in our church and our world. So we're just going to kind of scratch the surface of a couple things. But I thought we could start with some conversations about some of the escalating tensions developing between the United States and North Korea. At church this week, actually, uh, I had a number of, there were a number of people in our congregation who kind of stood up and shared uh, about how familiar some of these tensions feel for people who lived through the Cold War, um, that it feels like there's sort of these escalating moves that are, might be pointing towards some kind of nuclear war. We're not there yet, but certainly the rhetoric from both the United States and other countries has gotten much more heated in the last few weeks. And Iris, I know that Mennonite Church USA just released a statement about this, so I wonder if you'd want to say a little bit about how the denomination is responding to some of these tensions. Right. I mean, there's so much going on and rhetoric going on around war and threatening um, each other. So we did a statement a few weeks ago when the bombing of Syria, um, and that went out, and we got a huge response from people. I mean, I think one of the biggest responses that we've ever gotten of people appreciating the church saying something, and then just recently we did one for North Korea. I think part of this is that I think these statements are important for several reasons, but one of them is I think it's important to remind ourselves as Anabaptists what we say we believe around violence and about war. And I think oftentimes we get caught up with what's on the news and what's going on. And I think we have to center ourselves of, okay, me as an Anabaptist, what does this mean to me? I think it also, we struggle with the the issue of non-resistance and engagement. So what does it mean to engage on a topic like this when about war? Uh, What does it look like? And what do we as Anabaptists have to share that's different or can join in with others to encourage a path of peace? I think that these statements are important for us to be thinking about these things. There are no easy answers. And I guess what I'm trying to say as a church is we have to find ways of engagement. Um, And I'm hoping these statements spur that kind of thinking and encourage people. I also connected to these statements. We know that there are Mennonites out there in these troubled areas. And I'm reminded of MJ Sharp Mm -hmm. giving his life in the Congo to bring peace. But there are others that we know working uh, in different places of war. Um, And I think these statements, again, have to remind us that when we stand for peace, it could mean giving our life up. Uh, It is not about a passive stand. 
For sure. And Jason and Michelle, I wonder if either of you have reflections about how specifically this kind of news about the relations between North Korea and the United States is intersecting with your work or the organizations that you're connected to? Well, I would, I would like, to, I, I like uh, what you said, Iris, about, this is Michelle, about engagement. Um, and, and I think, uh, so for, for Mennonite Central Committee, I mean, our, our tag is Relief, Development, and Peace in the Name of Christ. And we have been and continue to be in North Korea. We continue to provide uh, assistance through hygiene kits, through food, through school kits. Um, one of our projects, in fact, is supporting orphanages. There are so many um, orphaned children in Korea, not only because of fleeing um, violence, but also that, you know, there's a flooding issue in Korea, and there are a, a lot of young, a lot of children that are orphans, and so part of our work is supporting these children through the orphanages, orphanages with, you know, our, the school kits and the hygiene kits and, and, and the food and, 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 and just other ways, as well as I, out of our uh, Canadian branch, um, Korea, Korea is serviced in terms of teachers. Um, so when we talk about engagement, engagement as Anabaptists who are, philosophically, theologically opposed to war, but I, I resonate clear, uh, completely with Iris in that, but it does not mean we do nothing. Yeah. Uh, to, to do nothing is violence. So um, I, I appreciate uh, you saying engagement and, I, and, and those types of ways. You know what I really loved about uh, Irvin's letter was the way it, it framed it in the context of the endless war uh, faithful witness resolution that we passed in Kansas City in 2015, that really outlined that said, you know what, after 9-11, we engaged in this nonstop campaign of trying to secure ourselves and secure ourselves from terrorists or perceived threats or whatnot. But North Korea, is a, it's, you know, it was mentioned in, in Bush's speech, the, the axis of evil. And I think you know, even at that time, people kind of thought, well, where, where is that coming from? You know, I think people had a pretty, people were okay with saying, okay, not Anabaptists, but sort of the general public saying, Okay, Afghanistan, we can understand. Iraq, that's that's a stretch. Um, you know, maybe not. But then you start looking around around the globe, and it seems like we're just looking for reasons to fight. You know, and, and that doesn't make. Uh-huh. I don't think that makes anyone happy. I, you know, and the, the question of engagement, it's it's an interesting one too, because the people I know who who supported President Trump, or maybe they didn't even support him, but their glass half full attitude after his election was well, maybe now we pull back from some of this uh, interventionist foreign policy and, and maybe, maybe he's going to you know, sort of stick to his, to his word that we're not going to be you know, trying to save the world from itself you know, through bombing. Um, but that's not the case either. So I, I think we, there are probably a lot more people who've maybe reached the end of their ropes and saying, yeah, you know what, how do we engage this? If this, you know, and there are a lot of peacemakers in, within Mennonite Church USA and especially some of the folks who helped craft the, uh, that, that statement, that say, you know, this is an empire, and it's sort of running rampant across the world, and how do you rein it in? Uh, and for a lot of folks, the election of, of Donald Trump was going to be that, that last reign. But now if that's broke, I think we kind of look at, look at this situation and say, what are our other options? You know, how, how do we keep this military machine at bay? You know, not even thinking about shrinking it now, 
you know, which would be very optimistic, but how do you keep it from just, you know, sort of systematically finding more targets to engage with war? It's, it's very, it's a pretty pessimistic view from where I'm sitting anyway. Well, Iris, you mentioned actually the statement that Mennonite Church USA put out after the bombing in Syria. And that to me, in some ways, that was a turning point, it seems like, for this particular administration to say, we're going to get involved. And that's when it felt in many ways like an emotional response to admittedly horrific news. So as people of peace, how do our statements, and I think the Mennonite Church USA statement did this well, how do our statements acknowledge the very real pain in Syria, but also that this is not the solution that we as Christ followers wish to see. And, and I, think, I think we put a spin on, you know, when we hear, well, you know, we just bombed uh, the airfield. Uh, uh, you know, there were no uh, uh, civilian casualties. But any casualty, any loss of life is important. And as the church needs to speak to that, it's not just, you know, they minimize life. <laughs> Um, and, and that's, I think for me, when the Syria thing happened and, and the rhetoric that was coming out of there, well, we just bombed an airfield. There was very few people there. <laughs> well, I mean, if you're, if you're a family member of someone that was killed, I mean, that's, you know, that's horrific. Um, and we just kind of minimize that. We, we become very, as a country, just kind of cold to that. Because this is the language that's used, that, oh, we hit the target, or, you know, there weren't very many civilians. And then later on, we find out, oh, a hospital was bombed, or, you know, a neighborhood was bombed. And in 1999, when I went to Iraq, that was the same kind of stuff that was going on, that, you know, we weren't bombing neighborhoods. We weren't bombing. And when I was in Iraq, I actually went to neighborhoods that were bombed by the U.S., neighborhoods where families lived and where families died. And so it's very emotional to me when the Syria thing happened because of my whole experience being in Iraq and seeing who we actually were bombing. And, of course, they say, well, they were mistakes. Well, dead is dead. Dead is dead, right. Yeah. Well, moving to news that has been a little bit closer to home in our own country, the United States, this week, there was more news this week about police shootings of black men and both the government's response to that and another shooting that was brought to light. So this week we heard that there will be no federal charges brought um, against the police officers who killed Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and also that Jordan Edwards, a 15-year-old, was killed in Houston, Texas this week while driving in a car with some other teenagers. And this is horrific news, and we keep hearing this news. It's not new, but in some ways I think it's getting reported more than it was. Um, and I think back, this, this brought me back to the conversations from Ho the Hope for the Future, especially in the Black Lives Matter group there, who are really saying, hey, church, especially white people in the church, what's at stake for you here? And what's it going to mean to be a peace church in, in the wake of these shootings? And so I wonder if we... Yeah, how does that definition of this peach church speak to us still right now, this call to get involved in this movement? And what are those resources we can point people to to really engage Black Lives Matter and respond to these shootings? Well, I would just say um, this um, call to the church, the Mennonite church, is not new. It has been a call to the Mennonite church from its very beginning in this country in regards to issues of of uh, standing up, uh, you know, if you want to even say for the least of these. And the, M, the Mennonite Church 
equivocating on these issues and, you know, nuancing and wanting to pay more attention to the, the language of peace, but not uh, including the language of justice. I mean, I, I, I think of just recently being at a gathering of uh, leaders of color in the Mennonite church during the 60s. And it was interesting that there was a panel of young uh, Anabaptists uh, who were speaking about what it's like for them today. And the elders who, you know, were left or were run out of the Mennonite church were in tears because they had, they had hoped, they had prayed that the conditions would be different. And, and um, so I, I, I think we, we uh, really, like the rubber meets the road is where the problem is. And, and I don't even know what to say. I am just clear that I'm an Anabaptist whose chosen expression is through the Mennonite tradition. But my understanding of peace does include justice. Mm -hmm. And I also realize that uh, there are many, many Mennonites and predominantly my white brothers and sisters who do not, uh, you know, or, or feel like peace is, um, peace is keeping the peace as opposed to peace is uh, standing up for justice. And, and so when I, when, uh, when the verdict came back on Alton Sterling saying that the uh, police didn't mean to shoot Alton Sterling. I'm saying, how do you not mean to shoot somebody six times? So there is just a uh, real, there's a big disconnect between what is considered, quote, justice. And, and then there's also disconnect um, that, that people are not outraged. So I, um, I, I continue to be dumbfounded and I, and I can't look at the face of Jordan Edwards because I want to cry. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, and defy anybody who will want to say that that young child needed to be shot in the head while he's driving away. I mean, we really don't have a conversation. Is that, is that Christian? I mean, you know, at some point we have to take a stand and say life matters and black lives matter. And saying black lives matter does not mean other lives don't matter. But if we don't value black lives, and I would also include indigenous lives into this, yeah. into this conversation, then, then um, our, our rhetoric of loving our neighbors and loving God and being followers of Jesus is a lie. Yeah. You know, I, I, I agree that uh, with Michelle, like we, we haven't, uh, as, as a tradition, as a people, we still haven't reconciled peace and justice, you know, in, in, in true ways. You know, we, we're still living a lot from from a non-resistant past, and, and we haven't even really gotten out of that. I would say uh, another thing, especially with our white brothers and sisters, and I'm a white guy, I think a, a lot of our definition of peace is skewed by, by our perspective. And so I can say for me, every interaction I've had with the police in my adult life has been positive. And, and I feel that no matter where I am, if I engage a police officer, he, would, he or she would be in my service. Yeah, you know, when I was 17 doing some minor vandalism, you know, a little different story, but as you get older, they work for me, right? And that is just not the case for so many other folks. And so if I'm looking at the world, we're saying, look, every time I see a police car, I see someone that's going to help me. Or if I look at the world and say, you know, every time I see that police car or that person, I don't know what's going to happen. The worst case is, is, is reality. That's not peace. 
And so it's, uh, I think we need to broaden our perspective a, a lot uh, just by recognizing that, you know, maybe it's, it's easy to say, well, actually, peace is sort of the baseline and there's a few interruptions here or there. Actually, it's not. Actually, it's, it's the furthest thing from peace for uh, too many people in our country. I'd like to bring this a little bit closer to home. I think that, you know, when we hear about these shootings, we often don't think about the people in our own church, people of color in our own church that have to deal with this on a daily basis. And not only deal with it, I mean, it's not just the personal dealing with it, but if you have children, that you have to train your children how to react to police. And even if you do that, you know there are no guarantee they'll come out alive with an interaction with a police officer. The, so the stress that puts on people of color within our own church day to day, I just think that white people just don't really understand. Because I think what you said, Jason, they've always had positive interactions with police. And early on when this stuff started escalating, my daughter had a run in and I was, I was shocked and it was scary. It was, it just reminded me that no people of color are safe, that the police do not work for our communities. You know, we think of, uh, what do they call peace officers? Well, they're peace officers for the white community. But you hear the rhetoric now, we're going to be a law and order country. Well, who is that law and order country for? That law and order country is going to be to further target people of color communities. That's the code language. And the big thing overlaying all this is racism um, that we still cannot seem to get a handle on in our country and even within our church. And, and so, you know, Black lives don't matter. The retaliation against immigrants and Muslims in our country and, and this constant framing of, uh, I just heard that one of them was, they framed Mexicans as filth. And this was from one of our leaders of our country, Mexicans that way. So, you know, it's, it is far deeper than we want to, to admit. It's far deeper even in our own church that we want to do. And uh, I do want to talk a little bit about the whole thing about the race in the church, racism in the church, is that, and we've talked about it, we've never named it per se, but I'm giving it a name now, and I'm going to be writing more about it. One of the things that we've always heard from Mennonites is uh, they don't understand white privilege. Some of them will even say they don't have it. Well, I begin to realize in doing more and more work on this that actually Mennonites have two layers of white privilege. They have the white privilege given to, to them by, by society and our race structure. They also have what I'm going to be calling uh, white Mennonitism privilege. And uh, that takes the form, especially within the church, of who's included and who is not. You know, uh, who do we listen to? Who do we promote? You know, we use the word shoulder tap. And if you look at that, most of the majority are people that were born and raised in the Mennonite church and are considered, and I've heard people say they're the real Mennonites. Hmm. So if they're the real Mennonites, what does that make other people that have joined the Mennonite church? 
you know, so anyway, it, I'm just bringing it to me. The race is, is what racism is just, it is just really embedded. Yeah. Ben Gosen just wrote an article called, and it's on Anabaptist historians. Oh, yeah. Uh, Mennonite fascism. Oh, yeah. And it's just uh, April 27, 2017. And it is, it, it looks at a, a Mennonite, uh, I think he's a, he was a historian or, or theologian, J.J. Hildenbrand. And it was interesting, one of the statements that J.J. Hildenbrand said, he talked about the, the pure, that Mennonites constituted a pure-blooded nation or race uh, since uh, rising in Central Europe 400 years previously. And he calls the other people uh, who become Mennonites and, and, and warn the Mennonite church against global, the global plague of racial defilement, and but what is mo was most um, alarming for him was he says our Mennonite girls, to which we Mennonite men have the first and only right, and whom we approach only via the honest path to an altar, are now exposed to the sexual caprices of these and similar types that such a reality makes my Germanic blood boil. And, you know, and so, and, and the idea that any converts, even though they may believe in adult baptism, foot washing, opposition to oaths, non-resistance, they could only be Christian. They could not be Mennonite because Mennonite comes from racial origins. This, it, it, uh, so I, I'm, well, I mean, so you're illustrating very clearly how deep the roots of this go. And I think that white Mennonites have not, like I'm including myself in this, have not unpacked that enough. And Ben Gosen wrote another article called Mennonite Privilege that gets into some of what you were referencing too, Iris, that especially white Mennonites have had um, in some ways a victim complex as well, since many of them came kind of under threat from places like Russia and that they there hasn't been an acknowledgement that we're no longer in that place. We have a lot of systemic power as white Mennonites in the United States. And Michelle, I also heard in your earlier comments, I mean, what's also at stake for white Mennonites is frankly just like integrity. Yeah. Um, in our, if we want to talk about peace, if we want to talk about being for life, we have to be against racism and in support of black lives. So, yeah. And I want you know, one piece that kind of comes along with this also, there has been a lot of talk in the Mennonite church recently about the doctrine of discovery, this doctrine that allowed Christians, mostly European Christians to come to other countries. And if a land wasn't settled by Christians, that doctrine basically said it's open for settling. So this contributed to the displacement of a lot of indigenous peoples. And some happier news last week was that Mennonite church USA representatives were involved in the first annual Indiana Indian Day, which was hosted to honor the Potawatomi and Miami tribes who were original settlers in this Indiana area. And Mennonite Church USA staff Nancy Kaufman and Jason Kaufman gave kind of a confessional talk naming the ways Mennonite settlers had contributed to this displacement. I wonder, you know, both Michelle and Iris and Jason, I know your organizations have been involved in some of these conversations about educating people about the doctrine of discovery and these connections to the land and how Mennonites have been complicit in that displacement. I wonder, Iris, if you could say a little bit more about the process of kind of developing that confessional statement and what Mennonite Church USA is doing with this doctrine of discovery education. Well, I think that statement, the, the one that Nancy and um, Jason had shared, really came out of work that Nancy's husband, Joel Kaufman, had been doing there before he died. And I think that they then just updated 
the statement with further research, and then and then they they gave that. Um, Mennonite Church USA, along with um, MCC and others, we've been involved in um, Doctor Discovery Coalition. It's not that we're all doing the same work, but we're all doing similar work, and then we try and find places where we can collaborate together, like. We did the curriculum, we did a video, uh, we have a website. But I like this coalition because it involves congregation, it involves conferences, it involves MCC, it involves the denomination, it involves all levels of the church. And for change to happen and for real education to really take root, it has to be at all those levels. And usually what ends up happening, it, when we do education on pieces, it always ends up with those that are interested. And so this is a difficult uh, thing for people to hear. It's difficult because Mennonites uh, came from a rural setting and, and owning land and farming that land. And I know like in Canada, they're doing their own work around this. Uh, they're, they're mainly focusing on the residential schools but they are also, I know Elaine Enns is doing work on uh, her family and land with uh, Chippewa uh, young men there. So I think there's all kinds of things going on. And then, of course, MCC has a more focused work on it. And I'll let Michelle talk about that. Yes, I, I think the coalition has been one of those places where the different people can come together and not only share information, but just encourage one another in, in our commitment to the church and to our uh, brothers and sisters, uh, as well as share new ideas on how to um, get the message, get the message out there. Here at MCC, uh, I have a staff person. Her name is Little Erica Little Wolf, and she is uh, of the, she's Cheyenne. She is the uh, director of our Indigenous Visioning Circle. And, and that's where we house most of the work, all of the work of uh, the Doctrine of Discovery. I think it's important for people to recognize that the Doctrine of Discovery allowed, quote, Christians, and really European Christians predominantly, to exterminate, extract, and enslave people. So when we come to this, to this continent, all three existed the extermination of the indigenous people, and the numbers are in the millions, uh, hundreds of millions is what some estimates have said, uh, the enslavement of African people, and the continued extraction from the land, that, that water uh, is not a right, and, 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 you know, and, but yet no one's giving up the title to the land. So you know, there's this really weird um, understanding of who has the right to own, and that whole thing of owning, I think, is um, something to look at because it, it's insidious and, 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 and it, it, it becomes a theology in and of itself. Who has the right to own, own land, own people, own people's rights? And so Doctrine of Discovery, uh, you know, it, it's pretty, again, it is pretty insidious. Recently I spoke at a, uh, I spoke at a church and there's a plaque in front of the church and the church talks about the migration uh, of the Mennonites to this particular area and they just designated this area as no man's land. So, um, 
you know that that's that's in in that's carved in front of and it's like wow this is like so deep that that idea that it's no man's land and 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 never really uh, interrogating but that is that is the legacy that's the story that they they uh, say for themselves, and I think we also, um, I know as Mennonites, we've been involved in, and and our we need to look at our relationship to these residential schools. We we were there, we are there, and so uh, there's a and there's a there's a legacy to acknowledge, and and not and unless we acknowledge um, and uh, acknowledge uh, uh, our humanness as people and are willing to uh, repent, we can't, move, we can't move forward. But as long as there's this kind of uh, uh, need to hold on to piety or whatever that really makes it difficult to be fully human and to, re- I think, to fully understand what it means to need Jesus. So that's my, and, and I do want to say like John, and an example of someone in the church who has looked at his relationship to the land and the, the privilege of, of, of having land and, um, and to his life now is John Stace, who is my predecessor here at uh, Mennonite Central Committee. He is working with, he's uh, dealing with the issue of, of the, the land, the land that was, uh, and he inherited and, and has inherited and they've inherited for multiple generations. And, and, and it's a, it's a, it's a work of integrity, what he's doing. Hey, uh, two quick things, Hannah. One, just uh, for our listeners to know, our very first episode of Peace Lab podcast was with Erica Wolf. So if you want to know more about her and her background, and especially her work on doctrine and discovery, that is a great way to get in there. And the second thing I would say is um, it's important to know this. It's not just because it's an exercise and sort of, you know, sort of self-flagellation about you know, what happened in the past, but the effects live on. You know, I would encourage anyone, you know, get to a reservation, to, to a native reservation, and try to come out not so angry that you, that you can't see straight, right? It's, it's those attitudes uh, that were embodied in law that still carry on, that, that, that continue the mistreatment that, uh, that goes on to this day. So learning about this past is the only way we're really going to uproot it. And it needs to be uprooted because it's living, it's, it's playing itself out today in terrible ways. Well, it's literally still a part of the United States law. There was judge John Marshall who kind of built the spirit of the doctrine of discovery into our land ownership policies that are still affected here today. So the whole protest that happened at Standing Rock, Eric a little with talks about this in that first podcast that, you know, these corporations having more access to indigenous lands than the indigenous people themselves, that is built into our law and, and, clearly still living out today like you mentioned jason hey well that's all the time we have for today thanks to each of you for being a part of this conversation and thanks for those of you listening you can listen to peace lab at the mennonites website pjsn website pjsn.org on soundcloud stitcher or itunes and thanks for tuning in